I have one more thing I should have squeezed in before today's lesson, and that is I want to talk about the development of instruments as part of the worship in the church. Um, very briefly, later on, we will talk actually about acapella singing, about psalms only, uh, about some of those more controversial issues in churches. What I want to just acknowledge is that during the Middle Ages and until the Middle Ages, until the 900s or so, they did not have instruments in, in, in worship services, as far as we know. Um, the first recorded instrumental use in worship was 757. It, uh, Pepin presented an organ to the church of St. Cornelie. I'm saying it wrong. Somebody who knows French or knows France can, can north of Paris. So there's a cathedral north of Paris that received an organ in 757 from Pepin. That's the first that we know of an organ being used in church. Um, we find depictions of harp and violin in some manuscripts uh, from the 900s to the 1100s. We know that in the 900s, organs became a common feature in abbeys and cathedrals. Um, initially, the purpose of the organ was to help singers hit the right notes, but eventually their purposes became more complex. Eventually, the music became more complex. And um, until that time, they followed what we, what we know as Gregorian chant, would have been the style of what you would have heard when you go into a worship service. Um, instruments did not really become widespread until about the 1400s. So, you know, for most of church history... Church was a cappella. They were singing with the human voice. Um, just a few thoughts on that. Um, one is this. We should be sober about the fact that singing with instruments is a relatively new thing in the church. Uh, I support it. I'm positive about it. I'm into it. Um, but we also need to learn from church history uh, about the centrality of the human voice in worship. Um, we want our worship to still be a reflection of what God's people have done for so long, which is the human voice lifted up in praise to Christ. And for a great deal of church history, that was not the case. Instead, the worship service became a performance that is observed. And we'll talk more about that, especially when we talk about the mass. Um, Revelation shows instruments being used to praise God. Uh, I would argue that churches have overcorrected in many cases, and they've actually adopted a medieval style of worship where the experts sing and the people are silent. So I think we've actually gone back in some ways to the more medieval, less interactive liturgies. Now, the churches don't call what they use a liturgy, but that's what they're using. They're using a liturgy of performance, essentially, and that's taking us back further than the Reformation by far. So anyway, what I'm trying to say is let's appreciate the need for the human voice to dominate in worship, to be the thing that we mostly hear when we're singing. That's, that's something I wanted to stick on last week, and I would have stuck it on if we'd had more time. Um, but I do not include that in these, this next section because <laughs> I'm calling this next section the growth of error. Uh, the growth of error, largely as I've looked at the early church, as we've looked at the Middle Ages, I have tried to be positive and appreciative, but I need to at least talk about three issues, three examples of idolatry that developed during this time period, and I want you to have at least a sense of, of how it happens and how we get there. Um, and those three subjects, and I don't know if we'll get to all three of these today. I, I don't think we'll get to this last one, Mariolatry. 
Uh, I don't think we'll get there. We may not even get to the icons. I'm not sure. It depends on uh, whether we get a lot of questions and just how, how slow I end up going. But we need to talk about the Mass. Um, in the Middle Ages, the Mass, not the sermon, was seen as the center of Western worship. I got a question a couple weeks ago. Was the whole service, including the sermon in Latin? And I kind of hemmed and hawed because I was afraid that there were outliers, that there were some people who were getting preaching in their plain tongues. And I went back and did, some, did my own work. And I found out that in the 900s, there was a decree that the whole service should be done in Latin, including the sermon. So if anybody did it, they were just being naughty. Um, and what that meant was the thing that you could make the most sense out of in the whole sermon was the thing that you could see and that you could touch, right? Talking about the Eucharist. Um, it became known as the Mass. Um, sometime after 604, sometime after Gregory the Great, the Lord's Supper started being called the Mass. The name comes from the Latin word Misa, Misa, which means to be sent, right? It means go, it is sent. Those are the last words of the Mass. So the term Mass gets its name from the conclusion of the Lord's Supper. Um, when it... Eventually, the changes start to develop, and I want to highlight a few of the changes from the early church to what you start seeing in the Middle Ages. One of the changes is the role played by the layperson. One change is the role of the laity in communion. So lay communion became less frequent, and what I mean by that is just average people in the church receiving the Lord's Supper. It became less frequent. Uh, only the clergy and the monks actually participated on a regular basis in the Lord's Supper. Um, by the 6th century, lay people were required to receive communion three times a year. They were supposed to receive communion at Christmas, Easter, and Pentecost. Eventually, that was reduced to twice a year. And by the 1200s, they were required to receive the Lord's Supper at least once a year. Yes, Asha. I don't know when the date is that it actually starts happening. I think that if you, if you look at the way these t things tend to develop, it is usually not some kind of decree that's given by anybody. But instead, it ends up being sort of a gradual thing where people over time simply start to see the Lord's Supper as something holy, hard to approach, something you should be afraid to approach. And over time, there's almost this social pressure, right? Wow, look at look at. I'm going to make up a name. Look at Joe. He went up and received the Lord's Supper. Well, I know that he sinned this week. And you start to see that the priest takes it every week. I mean, think about it. How Think psychologically about how you guys think even about your pastor. Now, maybe you maybe think, don't think anything about me uh, exalted and high and mighty and stuff like that. But pastors tend to get treated differently than everybody else because people imagine things about them that may not actually be true. <laughs> And, yeah, and priests, priests were no different in the Middle Ages, where people would just imagine how holy and great this person must be. And then they would say, oh, he's getting the supper. He's getting the supper. He, he should be getting the supper, but, but me, not me. Yeah, were you going to ask a question? Is this a mass, the word from the Roman Catholic? Yes, yes. And that's why we don't call it the mass. So we'll talk about why we don't, why we, why we don't have the mass here. We have the Lord's Supper. Um, but yes, the, so the word comes from the Latin word, 
Um, and that ends up being what it gets called in the Middle Ages. But I think there's good reason why the reformers abandoned that term. Um, they abandoned it for a lot of reasons. Um, so the, the, here's what happens. The priests receive communion every Sunday. Uh, they eat the bread. They drink the wine. And guess what everybody does? They watch them. They watch them receive the bread and the wine. Um, so you have a few motivating factors behind all of this. One is the fear that the you know the fear of God is very great. Um, they have great reverence and dread and and fear took center stage for many people. And so, especially in such a mysterious environment, think about it. It's all in Latin. You don't know what's going on. The good man up front, the good the holy man up front is getting it, and maybe he even comes out to the congregation and says, "Come, partake," and. Who has the nerve to move? And over time, you can see the grace of Jesus isn't being preached. Why would, they, why would they be motivated to come? They probably are too fearful to come. And the grace of the gospel has not been held out to them. So they don't understand the gospel, right? It's not been explained to them. How, how would they dare to come? It, it kind of actually makes sense over time why people would get used to not coming. And why eventually you have to have church councils that require them to come. We'll talk about those church councils in a moment. Um, Sometimes the clergy actively discourage people from participating, right? They would invite on the one hand, and then on the other hand, they would actually scrutinize those who had the nerve to receive the supper. Um, They would give invitations, but at the same time, they would warn, but they would do it in such a way that nobody in their right mind would actually go, you know? It's not hard to do. I've fenced the table a few times and I really wish that I was more gracious in the way I did it. So I know how that can be. But imagine, imagine if you never heard the gospel preached. How, how would, why would you ever approach the table? Why would you do that? Um, so here's what happens though. And I'm fast forwarding a little bit to the time of the Reformation. This is part of the reason why the Reformed churches tend to make the invitation to the table a greater emphasis than the warning. Because they saw people for centuries afraid to come to the table at all. So you have this distinction between what was called high mass and low mass. Um, By the 13th century, here's the practice. High mass takes place every Sunday. All the congregation would participate in high mass in theory. (laughs) In theory, everybody participates on Sunday. And then here's what you would also have. You would also have low mass. And that happens during the weekday, and only the priest would partake of the bread. And it's only offered, the priest doesn't offer the congregation to partake. Instead, they get used to it during the week, six days a week, watching the priest partake, it, partake of it and watching themselves sit by. And again, you've got that pattern. Why would that break on Sunday? Why would you take it on Sunday? You didn't take it the rest of the week. Eventually, it becomes a practice only for people to receive the bread, but not the cup. So what happens? People receive the bread. They don't get the cup. The priest takes the cup. The priest drinks the cup. There is a fear that the blood of Christ would be spilled. And it was because of their belief in this million dollar word, transubstantiation. Um, again, we'll, I'll talk about transubstantiation in just a second. Um, the Eastern church continues to give both to the laity. That's, this is a, sort of a Western church thing. Although I don't know enough about the practices as they exist in Eastern churches to say 100% for sure what their practice was everywhere. Um, It's possible there is some variety in that. But here is another thing that develops, and this is a part that's still part of Roman Catholic doctrine today, a belief that the Mass 
is not merely a sacrament, but a sacrifice. Not just a sacrament, but a sacrifice. So I'm quoting from Thomas Aquinas here, who's considered a doctor of the Roman Catholic Church. Basically, his doctrine is their doctrine. Um, He says, this sacrament is at the same time both a sacrifice and a sacrament. It has the nature of a sacrifice to the extent that it is offered, but it has the nature of a sacrament to the extent that it is eaten. Therefore, it has the effect of a sacrament in the one who eats it, but the effect of a sacrifice in the one who offers it or in those for whom it is offered. So it was a sacrament when the people ate the wafer. Although, again, this is rare. This is not happening frequently. Um, The people begin to see the mass only as a sacrifice and not a sacrament. Why? No one's eating it. (laughs) So they're there to watch Jesus be sacrificed. Every Sunday, sometimes every weekday, and they're observing it. Um, Aquinas says the Mass still has value even if you don't eat the wafer because the priest's offering is a sacrifice. So he's, he's basically saying it's okay if you don't partake. There's still good in this even if you don't get any, any of it. Um, Nick Needham in his chapter in the book uh, uh, Give Praise to God says this. So for ordinary Catholics, their normal act of worship at Mass was looking at the wafer rather than eating it. So much was this the case that the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215 had to insist that Catholics must actually eat the wafer at least once a year. So (coughs) you're you're preaching law and the fear of God and no gospel, and then you're making people come to do something they are terrified to actually do. You've got to make a law of it because no one's coming. Yeah, Larry. So what was the point of requiring them to come and participate at least once a year? Uh, it, it's, a, it's a question I want to ask anybody who wants really infrequent communion. <laughs> what's, the good, what's the good in this? If, you know, and having it so infrequently, I couldn't tell you. Uh, they, they believe that there is still something in it that is beneficial to people. And that's why they should receive it. Um, They think, even though they think the sacrifice is sufficient, they still think people need the sacrament too. Um, Well, it depends on how you need the sacrifice too. Yeah. If the sacrifice on the cross wasn't sufficient, then you've got to do it every time you have a mass. Yeah, um, I would make a terrible apologist for this practice, so I won't defend it. Um, now here, I just want to take a moment to read our own church confession because there's one line in our confession that maybe you've always wondered what it meant. Here's what our confession says in Westminster Confession 29.4. Private masses or receiving this sacrament by a priest or any other alone, as likewise the denial of the cup to the people, worshiping the elements, and then it says these things are all contrary to the nature of the sacrament. But have you ever read that and wondered, what is this thing about the denial of the cup to the people? If you've ever read that and you've wondered that, this explains, this practice explains what was going on. They would deny the cup to the people. They would give them the bread, but not the cup. And our own church confession is saying, no, none of these things. Worshiping the elements, lifting them up, carrying them about for adoration, reserving them for any pretended religious use are all contrary to the nature of this sacrament and to the institution of Christ. Um, when Martin Luther does his first mass, you know, he holds the cup aloft. He holds it up high and he fears spilling any of it because he fears what it means if he's to spill the blood of Jesus. So 
you could see that he's holding it up. What is he doing? He's holding it up for adoration. He's inviting you to worship. He's inviting you to worship Jesus, who in what they're teaching, he's right there in front of you right now. Look at the cup. Um, which does bring us to the subject of transubstantiation. Uh, transubstantiation, if you wanted to really like boil it down, transubstantiation says that in the Lord's Supper, the bread becomes the substance, the substance of the bread becomes the body, the physical body of Jesus Christ. And yet the, uses Aristotelian categories here, the accidents of the bread, the thing that is presented to you that you see, remains bread. It looks like bread. It feels like bread. It tastes like bread, but its substance is actually not bread at all. It's the body of Jesus. So they, until, until Aquinas, until Aristotle really becomes helpful, <laughs> I'm going to use that word very lightly, Aristotle becomes available around the 12th century to uh, medieval thinkers and medieval uh, work, uh, you know, people like Thomas Aquinas. Once Aristotle becomes readable to them, they have the categories to start talking in a more scientific way about how the bread becomes the body, how the cup becomes the blood, um, and why it still tastes like bread and why it still tastes like blood. Whereas the Eastern Church doesn't try to go there as far as their explanations. Um, I just want to reiterate a few things. One, this was not the view of Jesus. This was not the view of the disciples. When Jesus sat at the table and he said, this is my body, his body was holding the bread. So he was, he was not telling them, this is literally my body and this is literally my blood. That is not a common sense reading of what's happening there. And only much later do these developments become such that they talk about them as if they are the thing itself. Um, over time, though, that language, which the early church was happy to use because they weren't misunderstood, ends up becoming literally understood. So, you know, if there was no such thing as Roman Catholicism and there was no such thing as transubstantiation, I would not hesitate, to be honest, to point to the bread in the supper and say, this is the Lord Jesus. And I would have no hesitation about pointing to the cup and saying, this is the blood of the covenant given for you. And I wouldn't give an apology and I wouldn't give an explanation because there'd be no need for me to worry about being misunderstood. And you can imagine in the early church how they would speak that way and feel very free in speaking it until finally it actually becomes misunderstood. Until finally it becomes the way that people think about the supper and eventually they go literal with it. Um, because people didn't have to be guarded about talking about the symbolism of the supper. Who in their right mind would think that this becomes his blood and he becomes his body in a literal sense? Yeah, John. Well, I think, I think too, um, and maybe this was already said or maybe I'm not sure, is that the, the, whereas we believe that we are saved by Jesus' righteousness and that, that he just takes away our sins, they believe, the Catholics believe that you are imparted the peace of Jesus Christ that is salvation, but you have to build upon that over time. You increase your salvation so you don't go to purgatory. And that's where this kind of comes into play is, as they believe, you have to do the sacraments and good works um, to build up your salvation. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so it kind of, I think it kind of plays into that mindset of like, well, then obviously then this is the body of Christ, because you are getting more of his salvation into you. Mm -hmm. 
The same stuff that belongs to Jesus becomes yours when you eat him. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about how the reformers, of course, understand the supper when we get to it. Because it's such, you know, this might, you might be thinking, man, this sounds more like a theology class than a worship class. But the thing is, it's very hard to separate the practices of the church from what we believe is happening when something like the Lord's Supper is taking place, right? It's in the service. <laughs> like we have to have some kind of understanding of what lies behind some of the practices that we start to see develop. Um, now, I want to point something out. Even during the Middle Ages, this issue is not settled. Uh, there is a, there's a man named Retramnus of Corby. His name just rolls off the tongue. Uh, Retramnus of Corby in 868, he writes against someone named Radbert and he opposes transubstantiation. So Retramnus is opposing transubstantiation and Retramnus is arguing this. He argued that the body in the Eucharist is not identical with the historical body that Jesus died and rose again with. He argued instead that the elements are signs that point to the spiritual substance that they represent. He pointed to John 6, 63, where Jesus says, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. And what he essentially says is, what good would it do for you to physically eat Jesus with your body if you don't spiritually feed on him by faith? So, Retramnus, that guy's singing my song. Like, that guy's holding it down. Um, He opposed the mass. He argued Christ died once for all. He doesn't keep dying over and over and over again until the end of time. So it's not like a switch gets flipped and everybody in the church is teaching transubstantiation and they're teaching the mass. But you know the way waves work. You know, they eventually do overwhelm whatever is in their path. And we're going to talk about icons. We'll see whether we get to it today. Um, But that is another wave that overwhelms some of those who are trying to hold it back. Um, Here's another guy. Hinkmar. Isn't that a great name? Hinkmar. It's a name that only a mother could love. Hinkmar of Reims. Uh, he followed Retramnus on his views of the supper. Um, the reason I'm telling you this is because even during the Middle Ages, the, some of the views that have become mainstream Roman Catholic views were not still, still were not universally held. Um, this, is, this is part of the press of the Roman Catholic Church they want to project that there is that their views are universal, monolithic, and unchanging, that they have always been the same since the beginning. And yet it is an illusion that is easy to knock down if you know much about church history. You will see differences between theologians. If you go back to 500 AD, you will find people using the language of the literal body and blood of Jesus, and you'll find just as many opposing it. And so... I'm just showing you that, that these things aren't universally understood and agreed on, that they develop in time and that they happen, you know, in the course of time. By 1215, the Fourth Lateran Council ensconces transubstantiation as the church's official position on the Lord's Supper. This was a development that became important that the reformers have to address it in the 1500s. So from 1200... To 1500, it is the official practice of the church until the reformers address it. So for 300 years, transubstantiation runs the show. Now, there are still people who dissent, but they are dissenting sort of in the face of everybody else. Um, 
so that's that's the one thing I want to talk about. And then now here's the other thing. Now, any questions about the mass I, in transubstantiation? Yeah. So um, 1,200 to 1,500 are now, with your definition of classification, between Roman Catholic and Catholic. This was the official Roman Catholic position between those years? Yes. Okay. This is the position that the Pope of Rome uh-huh. and the Church Council in the Western Church adopts. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. So your question is, over time, yeah. I think, that's a good way of putting your question. So the difference between the, a sick church and a false church. Oh, uh, it's the difference between a sick church and a false church? Uh, yeah, that? I think that because it took a long time, the churches are losing, and then they are getting, the, uh, the belief was weaker and weaker for a long time, and then they mm. must be affected in some ways by the Roman Catholic theology, yeah. Yeah. So, so what you're talking about is the encroachment of deeply troubling and contrary positions that are contrary to the gospel. So until Trent, the Roman Catholic, yeah. So until the until I, the the way I, I I guess what I'm trying to say is that during this time period, even when they believe in transubstantiation, it is still the church. But it is a sick church. It is a church that has that is beset with error. It is beset with troubles. And a lot of times during the Middle Ages, you actually have to look outside of the visible church or the, the, the church that we think of when we think of the Western church. You almost need to look at groups such as the Waldensians, for example. Um, the Waldensians are a group who don't believe in transubstantiation. They believe in the gospel of grace, justification by faith, by grace through faith. And when the reformers end up taking their stand, the Waldensians join them. And in fact, the Waldensians, my understanding is the Waldensians are Presbyterian now. And they still have congregations. Google it. There are Waldensian churches <laughs> still. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I'll write down the word. Uh, well, a place of origin, a country of origin. I need somebody who knows where the Waldensians came from. Is it northern Italy? Yeah, the northern, it's northern Italy. Um, John Bunyan, or no, not John Bunyan, John Milton wrote an amazing poem about the Waldensians and their murder by the Pope. And uh, it brings me to tears whenever I read it, so I won't read it. Uh, I think it's important to stress that when you
when you talk about that over a long period of time, one of the main elements of that is the people are no longer able to actually participate with knowledge in, in worship, in the service, and they don't have the scriptures. Yeah. So you're starving the people of God's word to the point where all they're doing is going by faith in what the leadership is saying, which by that time they've deviated from what the scripture is saying to the point of the gospel isn't the gospel anymore. And they're preaching for everyone that speaks Latin. Yeah. So they're preaching for their own people. And they're basically, it's very enclosed, right? We're performing for each other. Um, imagine... Imagine if I came in here and I only was preaching for those who've been to seminary. Imagine you, you, we'd ha every single sermon would be an intramural conversation and everybody else would be going, I wonder what he's talking about. And maybe you've, hopefully I haven't done this, but uh, maybe you've been subjected to sermons where you were like, I don't understand any of this. Um, just imagine over time what that does for the health of people, you know, spiritual health. <clears throat> Sorry. Yeah, not not oh, sorry. well, not universally, but yes. So because example, yeah, in your neighborhood church, you have a peasant population who can't read; they don't know Latin, and they're being taught another priest by a bunch of guys in Latin. It depends on what? it depends on where you are. Right. If you if you live somewhere where there's a major university. Yeah. Then, then you can still have educated priests in that area. But then, you know, if you're, if you're in the, the boonies, then maybe not so much. And so what ends up deciding everything in the church? It ends up being a sort of ensconced elite that are having conversations with each other. Yeah, Micah. of the word being, you know, spread out 
amongst God's people and receiving it. And every time that that becomes less the norm, mm -hmm. that's when you become anemic and the church just falls into disrepute. Yeah, Eric. I think also it's the entire, uh, all the ingredients together to make the, the perfect recipe. You have the fact that, you know, and I know you're going to get into this with the icons, but you know, everything is so visual, everything is so formal, everything is so um, wrapped in mystery. And, um, you know, to the lay person, you look at this and it's like a performance. And um, how, how dare you question that because it's, it's just packaged so um, elegantly. And mm -hmm. um, having traveled to, to some of the cathedrals in Europe, I mean, I was like blown away by how little I felt going into these um, cathedrals. And I just think of it all together. It, it was just made for a perfect manipulation of mm -hmm. people. Yeah. Um, yeah Carolyn. Yeah. Um, my understanding is that this era was uh, quite a mystical era in the culture. And we see how the culture impacts our churches and Christianity today. Do you think that impacted the, a lot of the almost mystical practices of that age? Well, think of it like this. As the, as the gospel spreads into places like the Celtic lands, right? Um, St. Patrick has to deal with Druids. He has to deal with a great deal of, uh, what would be the word? Um, uh, not lay religion, but lay paganism. Sort of a everyday sort of spiritualism that isn't eradicated when missionaries come in. And oftentimes they're not explaining, they're not able to explain the gospel in a full way so that the demons get exercised, right? I'm using a metaphor, but a lot of the stuff that's there before remains as long as the religious observances are kept. And so, yeah, a lot of that stuff doesn't get removed. Instead, it becomes accommodated. Yeah. Whereas, like, you and I would, would be like, oh, I'm going to a, a pagan culture. I'm going to brush up on my apologetics, right? <laughs> Maybe you would think like that. Um, and they still have to do that. But are they able to do it in such a way that every Sunday the sermon is geared toward that, that, that view that they're trying to correct? Almost certainly not. And so when you're talking about the regular diet of what people are getting, what you find is a lot of toleration for those things. And then you pair that with the mystery of the, the whole service. You leave people a lot of room to fill in the gaps with their own knowledge and their own beliefs about the world and what things are like. There's so, a lot of mysticism going on during that time, though, in the, in the culture, it seems to me. Yeah, I mean, mysticism in the sense that you're embracing mystery. You're not explaining things necessarily. You're going to be more content with talking vaguely about spiritual things but not getting down into what does this actually mean for me? What does this mean for the church? Yeah. You give relics and all the rest of that falls off. <laughs> so how can you tell the difference? What is a sick church? What is a false church? Yeah, I think a false church is... So the reason I say the Trent is the dividing line, it's the place that I go to, is because the church officially makes it their position. That is where they say... But until that point, they had not condemned the gospel. And until that time, you had men, even within the Roman Catholic Church... Like Gasparo Contarini. If you ever look up Gasparo Contarini, he does not leave the Roman Catholic Church, 
but instead remains in it and read his writings on justification by faith alone. There's another fellow named Juan de Valdez, both of them Italian writers, both of them in the Roman Catholic Church, and they stay in the Roman Catholic Church, but they, but they, they aren't in it for very much longer before they end up dying, not because they were killed. They were comfortable in the church. They preached Luther's doctrine of justification by faith alone. Um, I have Wanda Valdez's book in there, and it's a remarkable book on justification by faith alone. He was a Roman Catholic till the day he died. Um, but the Roman Catholic Church at Trent officially condemns what Valdez was, was preaching, what Contarini was teaching, what Martin Luther was preaching. The difference is Luther was a bigger big mouth. It doesn't condemn. It anathematizes. It anathematizes. It says that you are cast out. You are not in Christ. Like it uses the strongest possible terms. This is why I point to Trent. Because the teachings are there until the Council of Trent, but once Trent comes, it's their official view. Wasn't Luther's big mouth because of the printing press? Partly. Yeah. You got the printing press to thank for spreading a lot of that. There was never really available that kind of information. Yeah. I I, I think it's it's important to stress the last thing that that Micah said there. What they said was people who believed in the gospel, shorthand here, were condemned. They, they were damned. Yeah. Because, you know, the church had taken the position at that point in time that it's the church that gives salvation, not the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so yep. the church could damn them for believing those things. Um, that's actually a beautiful place for us to stop. Not beautiful because being damned for believing the gospel is beautiful. But, I mean, that's a good, that's a suitable place for us to stop. I would say next week we'll get back to this, but we're not going to have Sunday school next week. But, we, but in two weeks when we return, we're going to talk about Mariolatry, and I'm going to share some prayers with you that will curl your toes. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, can't wait, right? Just really, you're going to see some stuff and hear some stuff that's important for us to talk about, but not easy or pleasant to discuss. So um, let me pray for us, and we'll, uh, we'll close out. Heavenly Father, we thank you for, we thank you for the scripture, which protects us from needing to, pre- to pretend or invent beliefs of our own from nothing. Instead, we're not left to wonder or to feel around in the dark, but you give us your word as a light, a light to our feet. And so I pray that you would cause us to walk in light of your word, that we wouldn't be ultimately make church councils the, the cider for what is true and what is false, that we would remember that those churches and those councils have erred in the past, Um, Instead, help us always to be like the Bereans who held the teaching up to the word and said, does the word of God say this or not? Mm -hmm. And I pray that we would be those people, that we we would remember that it is ultimately you and your word who decide what is true. And I pray that you would protect us from falsehood. I pray that you would protect us uh, from being led astray and by constantly going back to what your word actually says. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.